Welcome to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. So today we are nearing the end of chapter two. This is going to be part six of seven recaps that we've got for this chapter. This time we're talking about pages 111 to 121 in the Orb 2012 edition. But before we get into that, we want to just take a pause here at the top of the show and just say a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. The crowdfunding support that we receive from listeners is, well, frankly, it's it's how we stay on the air, right? It's how we get to keep doing this show. And, you know, by the way, (laughs) you surely have noticed we've got a lot of show left to do, right? Wolf's writing career spans five decades. We haven't even finished one of those decades yet. And somehow he also only gets more prolific. And we want to be here for that. We want to be here for the long term. And this crowdfunding is how that is happening. So if you aren't already with us on Patreon, we would really appreciate if you would take a look at that at patreon.com slash Media. There are various levels of support that you can offer, different tiers of rewards and so on, depending on how involved you want to be with the, the network. But at every level of support, you get a bonus episode every month. And these come from around the network. We try to give equal space to each of our shows. But you get that as a reward at any level. And any level of support you can pledge is just a, a tremendous help to us. We're immensely grateful for the support we've already gotten for the network, for Clay Temple Media. Uh, but more support allows us to do more things. And we've already done some really great stuff on Patreon. We've got uh, additional short stories of Wolf that we haven't covered on the network. That's uh, stories like Straw and uh, Kiwis Laputus Sum. We cover his collection called Letters Home, which are letters that his mother collected that he wrote to her while he was in basic training and going through his experiences in the Korean War. We've also covered stories that are Wolf-like or are important to Gene Wolf in terms of his uh, formation or influences as a writer. We've got Snow by John Crowley, which is absolutely, absolutely amazing. An absolutely beautiful story. We're slowly covering some Jack Vance Dying Earth stories. And we got The Star by H.G. Wells. And we covered kind of a strange counterpoint to that by W.E.B. Du Bois as well. So that that's awesome. There's so many cool things on Patreon. So please take a moment here, pause the show, go to patreon.com, look at what we've got and decide uh, your support level for us. And that would be a huge help to us. But we are here now today to cover peace. So where we left off was uh, Alden Dennis Weir, our main character, uh, our memoirist, has been dragged, in a sense, to a dinner with Blaine Stewart, with his aunt Olivia. And mostly he's a kid, and they don't want a kid around. And so we're kind of in the middle of this dinner scene as we pick up here today. Right. This is going to be the fairy tale episode. We're actually going to get two uh, stories within the story in these just 10 pages that we're covering today. And the the first is going to be another tale from Kate. And Kate, we've met before. She was the maid when Weir's own maid, Hannah, was a a girl. And we, we have met her before. We met her in chapter one. But before we get to the story itself, we should do a little bit more with the setup. And yeah, as you say, Brandon, last time we left off at dinner at Stuart Blaine's house. And then after dinner, Weir is uh, permitted to go hang out with the hostler Doherty again. I mean, I say permitted, but like, you know, he's kicked out, right? They don't want the kid around, <laughs> as you say, though he doesn't want to be there either. So it's really a win-win scenario. But the disappointing thing for Weir is that by the time this is happening, because, you know, adults take so freaking long to eat because they're talking too much. They're just yapping the whole time. It was already dark. And so he couldn't ride the horses at that at that point. So instead, the kind of consolation prize is that Doherty tells Weir a story. And it, it's here that he actually says that he knows this story because his grandmother, uh, whom he refers to as the old Kate, used to tell it to him. This story, the story he tells here, takes place when there were kings in Ireland, and it is a story about Finn McCool, who was the strongest man in Ireland back in his day. Finn worked for the High King at Tara, and he had two companions, a dog named Strongheart and a cat named Pussy. The story begins when one day Finn is bringing in the cattle, and the High King summons him because he's got a job for him. The job is to help out St. Brandon, who is getting ready to sail his boat to the earthly paradise. The problem, though, is that the King of the Rats has gotten on board and he's doing some mischief, and it's going to be Finn's job to get rid of him. 
But this scene, the, the scene in which the hero is given his quest, this scene is actually funny, right? Finn is strong, but he's also stupid and, and maybe also even a bit lazy as well. So he says that he's heard about this boat and that it's stone. So, you know, why bother dealing with the rat? Because the rat's not going to be able to gnaw stone. So what can it do? But the king insists that the boat is not stone. The boat is wicker, like boats are meant to be. And when the king gets tired of listening to this and he, he tells Finn to stop trying to get out of the job and to just hurry up and go do it, Finn also wonders why Brandon is even trying to get to the earthly paradise and, and also, you know, where the earthly paradise is. And to this first question, the king says that it's not Finn's place to ask. And to the second question, he says that obviously it is to the West, because if you go the other way, you just run into England. So that is the background for the story. We're going to pick up with the rest of that in a moment here. Just as a note of interest, Gene Wolfe selected this story, this excerpt from Peace Really, as the St. Patrick's Day story in his collection, Castle of Days. So that's pretty cool. You can find this uh, this excerpted story there. And I should remind our listeners here also that St. Brandon was brought up at least twice in Chapter 1. He was an explorer monk who was out looking for paradise, which incidentally is, as you pointed out, Glenn, you know, what this story is also about. I mean, this tale within the tale here. And uh, we're going to be having to think, I think, a little bit as we continue along about the Irish experience in America, because it's clearly something that Wolf has on his mind for some reason. But we should just take a minute to talk about Finn McCool here as well. Now, I'm not very knowledgeable about Irish folklore, uh, but Finn McCool is a name that is easily recognizable to me. I think, you know, maybe also to many of us because we've been in a town or a city with a bar named McCool's or Finn McCool's where <laughs> you can get an overpriced Reuben and an even more overpriced Guinness. But Finn McCool here is a legendary hero in Irish folklore. He was a hunter whose notoriety dates back at least to the third century. Uh, he led a clan of warriors and his son was a poet and then kind of immortalized his dad in this epic poetry cycles. McCool, I think, is archetypally thought of as a crafty and wise warrior, a great leader and a great man as well. Sometimes he's even thought of as actually being a giant. So again, we're confronted with this idea that perhaps there is a, a certain type of person who impacts and moves history along in some way, this great man theory of history. And uh I want to point out that while McCool's name is given here, the king's name is not. And that could just be a device of the fable. But it also is meant to demonstrate to us, I think, that Finn is the one who is remembered from this time period in history, not the king's. And also St. Brandon. But Finn is really the hook to get the listener into the story. Yeah, there's a whole story cycle about Finn McCool and and just like, you know, thousands of variations on these on these stories. And he's kind of one part Beowulf and like one part Paul Bunyan and Paul Bunyan, of course, we've also had uh, invoked here in this in this chapter as well. And uh, this story, I mean, we've already gotten a hint of it, even though we're, we're you know only just getting into the story here. Uh, this version is definitely the more Paul Bunyan style version in that he's just a big oaf who's got an animal companion. You know, he's clearly dim witted here. That's part of the humor of this story. He himself is not actually going to accomplish anything, as we'll see when we get into uh, the rest of the story. And uh, yeah, it's you know all done for comedic effect. It, it, yeah, it really is, and we'll be talking about this more obviously as we get deeper into this little story, uh, this tale. I also want to point out here, and this is because we're snickers at it and points it out that the cat's name is is Pussy, and we don't really use this word for cats anymore, as many of us know, because. Its cultural meaning has just shifted into more explicit territory, and maybe that was already taking place in the 20s. But Doherty is put off by Weir's snickering, and that's because he says that like this name has been used for cats forever. And that's kind of true, at least for hundreds of years. And the etymological roots of naming a cat pussy or using some variation of that, even to, to refer to cats in languages like Romanian or something like that, appears to be the sound that many of us use to call cats, like that, like the PS type sound. And I never really thought about it before, but uh, you know, here it is. 
Yeah, as the dad of a uh, of a toddler, I will attest that that's actually what we call everything until we learn how to like actually use our tongues a lot better and have the teeth to make sounds. Uh, he knows what like dozens of animals are, but can really only actually say the names of four or five of them at this point. Like, so cow's not one of them. Cat actually is one that he can say now. Though we cannot say cow, but we'll just say moo when he sees one. And so, yeah, you know, this is how these words saw these words happen. But I'm glad you looked into that. I, I assume that that was what was going on here with this snickering. Because, you know, Wolf does not explicate that for us. And frankly, I just didn't want to look that up. I just I was like, I'm not sure that that's, uh, you know, what I want to be researching. <laughs> I was you know, I'm, I'm prudish, as people know. So I just didn't want to check that out. But I'm glad you did. But uh, yeah, let's get back into the the story here of Finn McCool and, and St. Brandon, I guess, whose story it really is, as we'll see. But Finn McCool sets out from Tara, which is uh, near Dublin, and he's headed to Bantry Bay in the southwest where Brandon's boat is docked. And Brandon's boat is so big that Finn can see it five days before he can even smell the ocean. The ship is so tall that the top of the mast isn't even visible. It just goes up and up and up into the clouds. And they say that an albatross hit the top of the mast in a storm and broke her neck and then fell for three days until she hit the deck of the boat. And Brandon then kicked her dead body off the deck and into the sea. But that fall also took three days because that is how big the ship is. Uh, Also, (laughs) this maybe tells us something about like St. Brandon's character that is uh, definitely not very saintly or at least not Franciscan, right? To kick a bird like this, but (laughs) there it is. And uh, anyway, when Finn and his companions finally reach the boat, they see a rat as big as a cow chewing on the anchor cable. Finn thinks that they ought to stop that. And so the dog, uh, his name is Strongheart, though he's never actually going to be called that in the the story, like after that's introduced to us. Uh, The dog draws his sword and fights the rat until the moon comes up. And in the end, the dog wins the fight and brings the severed head of the rat to Finn, who's just been hanging out watching the, the whole time. That's what he's been doing here. But the dog also really only won this fight because the cat snuck up behind the rat and tripped him. So... Now they come to the boat and they see two old men talking with each other. And one of them must be St. Brandon, but Finn can't tell the two of them apart. These people look identical, but the cat knows which of them is the king of the rats. And presumably, right, she can smell the difference. It's a difference that Finn can't see, but she can smell. But at any rate, that's it as far as Finn is concerned. He just tosses the cat onto the boat, tells her to finish the job. And then he heads back to Tara to tell the king that the job has been done, which, you know, it hasn't. But Finn, right, he is both stupid and lazy in this story. Right. This is not the most sympathetic portrayal of Finn McCool here. But, hey, he's almost out of this story. And, you know, the story will shift, as we'll see in a minute. One thing Wolf does here, and I mean Wolf, not Weir, is to demonstrate how maybe I think folk stories in particular are adapted by their tellers to suit the audience. So, for instance, Doherty tells Weir that the dog would have been the hero of this story had it not been for Weir's snickering about the cat's name. So now the cat is the hero to teach Weir some kind of lesson, I guess. I'm I'm still not (laughs) sure what lesson that is, but it's something. Uh, And that really makes the story a kind of a fable and is maybe why the animals are made to be the central figures of the story. Also, hey, Doherty's a hostler. He works with animals like it feels like he could have changed the story on the fly. Well, some of the elements of the story and kept the bones of the story the same. So the events remain the same, but the characters just play different roles in those events. And that kind of changes the, the maybe the moral or the meaning of the fable as well. Also, this albatross business is really a, maybe a bit of a, of a red herring here. <laughs> Doherty, <laughs> perhaps wondering if Weir has read his Coleridge. I mean, we've had reference to Emerson uh, before in this chapter already. Uh, Doherty is quick to say that, hey, it's totally fine. Seriously, it's fine that the albatross died on the boat and that St. Brandon kicked the albatross over the board. It was going to die anyway, you know. And if you're going to focus on the albatross as a symbol because you've read Rime of the Ancient Mariner, and we know that Wolf has used Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner as a uh, uh, an epigram in Fifth Head of Cerberus. Um, if you f- focus on the albatross as a symbol, maybe you'll be led down the wrong path of meaning. And I wonder if Wolf is kind of thinking about his readers in some sense here. Though, of course, the albatross could mean something, and we just don't have a sense of what that 
is yet or how this story plays in to the larger narrative of Alden Dennis Weir as he's constructing it. We just don't know what kind of symbolic or structural value this story has in terms of the whole narrative yet. So it's just tough to to make sense of it. But it seems as though Doherty's doing a lot to say, yes, in this context, the albatross might mean something, but I'm really going to de-emphasize that here. Look away. But it is the case that an albatross is a bird and birds sometimes die in in port or <laughs> in the ocean. Yeah, in fact, all all creatures die, Brandon. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. I hope I'm not. What? I'm, I'm not ruining anything for you. But yeah, we're we're gonna have a lot of work to do to think about these stories. Uh, there's so many of them here in chapter two. Chapter two so far has been really the whole, the, you know, the fairy tale or story within a story chapter. We're gonna get more of that, but I think that this chapter is probably gonna turn out to be the most intense there. So we'll tackle that in the discussion episode for this chapter. But then, of course, when we get, you know, like a year from now, when we get to the end of this book and are having probably what will be a series of wrap up episodes, we will have to tackle that because, wow, there's just a crazy amount of stuff that is going on with these stories. And this albatross business just might not come back till chapter four, chapter five, but it's hard to envision it not coming back. Yeah, we'll have to see. And as we continue into our next section of covering this story, our next episode, I think we'll see ways in which it might come back. But uh, again, it's all predictive. The last thing I want to say just about this brief part of the story is that this is the third like super giant thing we've seen so far in chapter two. We had references to the Lancelloth, you know, a megafauna that Aunt Olivia thought was a dinosaur. We've had we're imagining about Paul Bunyan, about being Paul Bunyan, chopping down trees and also about Babe, the blue ox. And now there's this giant ship. And also maybe Finn McCool is a giant, too, as we as we talked about before. That's not explicit here. But as we said, that is one of the legendary characteristics occasionally ascribed to McCool. At the very least, though, we can say that this ship is a ship for giants. And if the rat is a giant, the cat must be a giant. And maybe everyone's giant. And uh, strange reference to the legendary past. I'm just not sure what to do with all of this giant stuff. I don't know. We'll have to continue to think about that as as this novel continues. Well, this is certainly a book that's very interested in deep time, both backwards and forwards, right? We have all this apocalyptic stuff. And in fact, we get a lot of apocalyptic stuff going on with Olivia in the moment that we've got, you know, the sloth, the giant sloth happening as well. And so that's looking backwards in time and something that is characteristic, right, of, of the deep past is these, you know, massive megafauna. I don't know, massive and mega. That's redundant there. But, you know, freaking big animals is what we're talking about right <laughs> dinosaurs giant sloths that sort of thing but then also in so much of our, our mythic stories about the the past there are giants right i mean this is you know in genesis it's in uh greek and and roman and uh, e- egyptian literature as well and yeah the idea that finn mccool maybe is sometimes a giant suggests that perhaps in in irish folklore as as well we get some of this in like germanic stories right that you know there are giants that the people who lived here before us were giants in some way. So it's a real hallmark of of that sort of like deep sense of of the past, the sort of mysterious past that is itself a sort of big motif of this uh, of this book so far. So I think that's one of the ways where this fits in and we're going to have some work to do to I don't know take stock of all of that as we're continuing on with the book here. But I will say I don't think that Finn McCool in this story is a giant just because uh if he's a giant uh I don't think it would even take him 5 days to traverse the, the distance here and we do get <laughs> that unit of time because I think even uh someone of my height could actually do this this journey uh from Tara to Bantry Bay would only take about 7 days even with a fairly heavy rucksack. So uh if he's a giant <laughs> should take less than that and we're told 5 days at least. But in fact, now the story switches from even being about Finn to being about St. Brandon. It is about his journey to the earthly paradise. Brandon welcomes the cat on board. He says, now we've got Captain, Cat, and Rat, all three, and can sail. And it's as if he's been waiting for the cat to show up. And when the cat signs the paperwork to join the crew, she notices that the King of the Rats is listed as the ship's quartermaster, which doesn't seem right, doesn't seem like a good idea to her. But Brandon explains that the wicked can also do God's work. They can do God's work as well as the just. Uh, It's simply that they don't like 
that they're doing God's work. And he actually needed the rat that the dog and cat killed because Brandon himself is too sick to have brought up the anchor. And so at this point, Brandon says that the the ship has actually already reached this earthly paradise because the ship is so big that the bow is already in Boston Harbor. And so, okay, the earthly paradise is America. But what matters is that they are at the stern of the ship still. Uh, They're like still in Bantry Bay, even though, you know, the bow is in Boston Harbor. And it's not clear if their end of the ship will ever make it to Boston Harbor. And so they set out with a lantern and they're just going to walk the length of the ship and they make it. When they get to the earthly paradise, it's dark. And the cat doesn't really believe that it is the earthly paradise because there's no cream. Also, there's a sign on a pine tree that says no hiring today as well, right? So it's a funny story. But Brandon says it's only 2 a.m. here and, you know, you can't expect the cows to be milked that early in the morning. And when the cat asks how long it is until 5 a.m., then Brandon says 20,000 years. So (laughs) at this point, the cat just wants to go back to Ireland where it's light and she can get some cream. Brandon builds a cross and then at this point, the boat sinks The king of the rats uh, remarks that the boat was in fact stone all along, though Brandon corrects him and and says that some of it was stone in places, but some of it was, you know, wicker like it's supposed to be. Now that everyone is ashore, the rat asks if he should kill the cat now because the cat, like all cats, is a fey heathen creature and it is the duty of a Christian rat to kill her. Uh, Also, he says that he was sent on this mission, on the mission to kill the cat by the High King at Tara. And so at this point, we have to wonder, right? Like what game is the High King playing here if that is true? Because he also is the person who sent Finn McCool on this mission and is invested in Brandon's mission to find the earthly paradise as well. But None of that gets answered for us. And what we get here instead is an action scene. There's a duel between the cat and the rat and then an, an angel or, or, or somebody that that's actually how the text has it uh, comes out of the forest and asks, what's going on? St. Brandon explains that the rat is the personification of wickedness and he's fighting a fairy cat. And Brandon, like Finn McCool, is just watching to see who wins. And this angel or somebody, comments that they're just cutting each other to bits, and the bits are running off into the woods. And that's it. That's the end of the story, because in, like, the real world, Olivia has arrived to take Weir home. Yeah. I don't know what to do with this story. I mean, at least it's another strange founding of America story. The High King is playing this odd game, as you pointed out. There's an angel or somebody coming out of the woods. Pieces of animals are running into the woods. I mean, it's almost like this is from the same author who gave us a story by John V. Marsh and VRT as well. (laughs) It's just uh, like so much stuff and it's just a lot to wade through. Uh, Let's just assume that this story is in here for some reason and leave it at that for now, because I just I really don't know what to do with it at this point in the story. I don't know what the symbols are. I don't know if it's meant to have value. I don't know if the albatross thing is just saying this is just a story I heard when I was a kid. Look away. It's not going to have the same symbolic value as these other things. No idea. We can't even make a prediction. And this story is just totally crazy. We don't do a whole lot of this on, on this show, but over on Elder Sign, where we're doing you know much bigger variety of writers, we frequently will take a look at a story that's that's old, you know, say from the 19th century or the pulp era or something, and think about whether or not it would be published today. And usually the answer is no, if we're, you know, if we're doing that sort of thing. And we'll talk about why, right? But it's something that we do with our writer's hats on. And we have a lot of writers who listen to the shows that we do on the network. So that's a lot of fun for us to do. Uh, but I think if we were to do that with this story, though, of course, right, this story has been published all by itself, right, in in Castle of Days. But this story is a total mess. It's literally impossible to say who's actually the protagonist of this story because that switches four times. It switches point of view four times. And I don't, so I don't, it's like, whose story even is this? What story is this? What's the point of the story? It's kind of impossible to figure out. We can look at it at least on some level as a Christian allegory, and and that's probably one way we'll we'll look at it in our discussion episode. Is uh, you know I don't know a kind of theodicy, which I'll talk about in a moment. But the the Irish stuff is clearly important for some reason, 
And before we get to our wrap-up episodes and final discussion, I think I'm going to have to brush off some of my old Norton Critical Editions that talk about race sciences and the Irish immigration to America and the, I don't know, experience of the Irish in America and their role in the the founding of what becomes modern America and during industrialization. We're just going to have to look into that overlap and see you know, what's going on with Irish folklore, America, the history of Irish in America, and see if Wolf is thinking about, um, you know, I mentioned race sciences because he also brings up the Native Americans a lot, the the Indian tribes, uh, First Peoples. And I think he's thinking a lot about the people who made up America, who are just kind of not often encountered in history books, unless you're doing a specialized type of study. So I don't know, that's something that's on my mind. But again, we have have the emphasis here in this story that America is a kind of fabled land and it's part of God's providence that the sort of right people find it. You know, the idea that all things work towards God's good plan. And, you know, Mark Aramini has talked about this idea a lot in Wolf's work about how Wolf is a kind of has a very kind of specific theodicy, uh, an explanation for the suffering uh, of the world, of people in the world, of, of evil you know that even the the works that evil people enact are turned to good when God's total plan is revealed. But I, I'm not convinced by the argument as it's given in this story. I'm a little bit more sympathetic with somebody like Ivan Karamazov and Dostoevsky's work, who's actually horrified by the true evil that people can enact, and uh, you know that is horrifying when you encounter it. And I'm more sympathetic with that than I am you know, to be swayed with this fable about a rat chewing an anchor so that St. Brandon can find the eternal paradise. I mean, evil is just not sanitized in that way in our world. But we'll see how everything pans out. We might have an example of how this is not satisfactory even later in this chapter as an explanation of suffering. Well, and that bit might even really be the thing here that actually matters, right? The purpose for this story within the story here is to clue us in that we should be looking out for this very idea, right? This idea of wicked people actually serving a purpose in God's plan, whether they like it or not. And in fact, you know, it's it's something that explicitly they are not going to like because, hey, we're still just getting started on this book. And it's real clear that Weir has had a bit of a journey, right? That he's he comes from a, a family with some money. He increases that wealth a ton, but now seems to have lost that. So there's clearly some kind of character arc for him. Uh, we know that he's never married. And other hints of his biography that we we get as well suggest that, you know, there's a, there's a story here that we just haven't gotten yet. And it may turn out that Wolf is using this idea here to prime us to notice that Weir's actually the villain of this story. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to figure out more about just what is going on in this novel. We're already a third of the way through the page count and uh we don't really know anything <laughs> all right well we'll uh, we'll carry on here with this chunk today so we get two scenes uh, before we're going to take up the next fairy tale and the the first really is just the conclusion of the dinner at blaine's when we're in olivia enter the the parlor they overhear blaine chastising the the bank manager because the bank is not bringing in as much money as he wants and he, he says I know what the bank has produced in the past and what it is producing now. And either I get it or we have the examiners in again. Your job is to make the bank yield what I think it ought to. And if you can't do it, you're not doing your job and I'll have to find someone who can. And look, we already knew that Blaine was a bit of a jerk, but this cements it. And this might be the last that we get of Blaine as well. What a terrible night for Rice Pie. I mean, he's worked late. <laughs> he's had to force his employees to work late. He's forced to have dinner with his boss who's on a date. And then he's berated at the end of the evening. And Blaine's argument here as he's berating Rice Pie is a kind of standard make the spreadsheet match my vision sort of capitalist ideal. And it's awful. And there's no real sympathy for the person whose job it is. Like Rice Pie's actual job is to say, hey, you know, maybe we've tapped the resources of this town. They're not there anymore. We can't get people to invest more money in the bank because like their earnings are capped at a certain point because of the land resources and this and that. 
there's no sympathy for that type of reality. It's like, well, money should reproduce endlessly. And for Rice Pie, you know, to say like, hey, we need to approach this situation with an eye to reality and sustainability instead of endless, infinite growth. It's just Blaine doesn't want to hear it. And just, oh, I just feel so bad for Rice Pie. But I disagree with you. I'm not convinced that we've seen the end of Blaine or even all of Olivia's suitors yet. Well, I think it's definitely clear that we've not seen the end of Olivia's suitors, but I do hope that this is the <laughs> last we see of Blaine. That was maybe aspirational on my part because, yeah, I do not like this guy. Uh, I will say just as a note for listeners as well, of course, that we are uh, recording all of the episodes for Chapter 2 before I think any of them get released. But certainly we are recording this episode before our argument about how to pronounce the bank manager's name <laughs> has gone out on the air. So for those of you who have been engaged in what I can only imagine is going to be a heated debate on the forum about this, we're sorry. We don't know where you've come down. So I'm sticking with the recipe here. And Brandon clearly is throwing down a gauntlet by just saying rice pie. I don't know. Was that 27 times in two minutes? You said as many times as I could, Glenn. <laughs> well i do feel very bad for recipe here like i just imagine he goes home and he's just immediately starting to look for a new job doing anything like you you know like you just you you can't keep this job. I mean, he probably has to, you know, he's got a family that, you know, we know he's got a family that he's, he's supporting, but wow, I don't know how I could work this, work this job, work for a boss like this. I mean, this guy is just a huge jerk here. And also just like, like what, you know, what do you need the money for Blaine? Like, you know, like you're, you've inherited wealth. What do you need more income for and also you just told everybody i was there you just told everybody that you really just wish you could be an english professor oh did you not mean that you were just trying to impress a girl okay yeah i don't want to work for you yeah he also has a bunch of tenant farmers and owns a ton of property that he's getting income on so like it's just yeah he's just awful well all right well we'll leave him behind because i just yeah i don't know if i can keep talking about him though we will have to revisit him in the the wrap-up episode of course but the next scene brings us back to the affair of the chinese egg which we will really really like for real get next episode it's like the biggest tease it's like 100 pages of tease here about this but McAfee now has come by to pick up olivia to go out to the lorne farm and look at this egg Weir begs to go with them, though the plan apparently had been for him to spend the day playing baseball or, you know, just doing really anything with some friends. McAfee is not clear why Weir wants to come along, and, and frankly, I'm not either. This sounds terrible for a nine-year-old, but he's coming. That's that's what's happening here. And the, the scene here is really just the ride out to the farm. It's a, a ride in McAfee's roadster. And at this point in what is, you know, I think we are pretty sure, you know, the early 1920s, the term roadster here meant a car with two front seats that are enclosed and one rear seat that is just open to the environment. And so we're hanging out in this back seat in kind of a, a world of his own, really. And He's gotten bored, of course, as, you know, you totally would here. I mean, it's Kansas. <laughs> it's flat and, you know, just out there in the wind. And so what he's doing is looking at the clouds. Yeah, th- this whole passage is full of strange sorts of things. For one, uh, Wolf uses this image, uh, and I and I think it's Wolf here more than Weir, but I think Wolf uses this image of looking out to the back of the car while it's driving forward and thinking about how things are changing behind him and the car continues to move forward and it changes the landscape. To me, this is an iconic image that is often used to represent uh, history or at least a personal history. You know, we're stuck in this thing, our minds, our bodies that are that are propelled forward through time relentlessly. And yet we can still look back, though what we see behind us in the past is continually shaped and reshaped by the fact that we or the car keeps moving forward. I mean, I think I've seen this in a few, I don't know, Italian or French new wave movies. Uh, definitely <laughs> calls to mind. I mean, this passage almost really calls to mind um, a passage, which I won't cite because I couldn't find the actual passage in a book because I don't have the book, but um, William Faulkner's famous phrase, you know, the past 
isn't even passed is accompanied by a, a much longer passage that really feels like this whole scene that Wolf is writing. That's from Re- Requiem for a Nun. So uh, to me, this is this is a kind of iconic imagery about even just the way that this story is written, that the past is actually shaped by our propulsion forward into the present and the future. Well, last time we were we were pitching this as Gilmore Girls, except Kansas, and it's the 1920s. <laughs> and uh, now you're pitching it as a, a French film about trains, which uh, I'm on board with. <laughs> well, it's at least a, a kind of regional narrative, which was very popular in America in the late 19th century and early 20th century. I mean, Southern writers are still typically often thought of as regional writers or part of the regionalism movement or local color movement. So um, yeah, it's got that flavor to it. There's also a lot more going on in this passage. Weir encounters this moment where the symbolic invades a mundane reality, even as what he sees seems to refer to his own private archive of icons and symbols. So as Weir is looking up at the sky, he sees a, quote, lone pillar of white cloud that at first to him appears to be the mast of St. Brandon's ship. But then it's also at the same time that princess's tower rising from the sea, the the tower that we saw that was part of the story about Olivia and her three suitors, at least or four suitors, technically. So maybe in this way, the albatross finds some meaning if we're combining these images. And we'll have to see if someone falls from a princess tower at some point, I guess, or some symbolic version of one. <laughs> but, th- but this is really just a strange section with a lot of imagery combined with symbols and encounters with history all at once. And Weir explicitly thinks that this is a miraculous moment uh, or a, a moment of magic where the object that is designed for amusement's sake that is the cloud here, or even the car, uh, suddenly operates in a way that its true counterpart would in the world. And, you know, we all see images in the clouds or have when we've looked at them. This is a phenomenon called pareidolia, and it even harkens back to the platonic ideas of essences and, and objects, the shadows on the wall in the famous cave and so on. And here Weir, I think, is pointing out uh, in this moment, the cloud actually became St. Brandon, the mass of St. Brandon's ship in this tower. And that actually led to really similar astonishment and wonder, just as we'd feel astonishment and wonder if a toy gun shot real bullets or if a carnival fortune telling machine suddenly made you big or something like that. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, this is, I mean, there's very cool stuff going on in this scene that, I mean, well, for one thing, uh, this is just all beautifully described. The, the the imagery of these clouds are just fantastic. But I think that this reveals so much about who Weir is at nine years old, that these stories that he's reading and that we therefore are reading as well, uh, or even stories that, you know, we're not seeing him read and are getting narrated therefore but just that he's invoking that he's telling us that he's read or heard in some way and you know encountered somehow are shaping the way that he perceives the world and this then becomes a- another entry in the catalog of stories that wolf writes about how important stories are to us and how they shape who we are, how they shape the way we interact with and perceive the world, and also, uh, you know, how they serve as a, a refuge for us and a, just a kind of uh, almost sort of organizing principle for, for us in understanding what the world is and our, our place in it that we've just seen again and again and again in his work. There's also something I think he does really great about the experience of childhood here, about the idea that childhood is is really about potential and possibility, because you haven't run in to all of the walls and limits of reality yet. And I, I mean, I remember when I was a kid uh, staying in my grandparents' house in, in one of the bedrooms in the basement, uh, finding a, uh, a giant coin of some kind, some kind of emblem. I, I, I'm still not sure what it was. Um, staying in the bedroom that uh, my great great aunt had died in. So that room already had this sense of, of hauntedness to it or something a- extra. I remember when I was a kid and I found this coin and I and I put it under my pillow and, and prayed that I would wake up and it would be a Power Ranger 
uh, token <laughs> to turn me into a Power Ranger, which like I'm really glad that didn't happen now. But back then, it, it just it was possible. Like anything was possible, and any mundane thing could be could become a magic of objects. Could could transform and and i feel like that's a i don't know maybe not every kid has that experience i don't know i was only myself but um wolf seems to really capture that sense of total possibility here in a really wondrous way yeah i don't think you need to give up on this dream of being a power ranger just yet it, it could still happen <laughs> i've lost You're the bald, coin sure but it could still happen i've lost the magic coin glenn there's there's no there's no going back <laughs> well, let's see what we can do. We've got some listeners who might be able to help us out. You know, make Brandon a Power Ranger is, uh, I don't know, that's the new campaign. It's save, It's not quite Save the Clock Tower, I guess, but it's close. But yeah, I think this is a great point, right? I, I was questioning why Weir would want to go on this trip out to this boring farm when he could play baseball with his friends. I think that actually speaks more to me as a middle-aged person, like what I want to do, what I would want to do with my time, that I know that going and sitting and, uh, you know, talking to strangers about how they got an egg is going to be less fun than like playing baseball, at least for me. But we're at nine can't know that yet, right? And for him, the going someplace totally new is itself kind of exciting, even though he does actually get bored on the journey. And, you know, as we're going to see next episode, I, I think probably his choice was right, that he got a lot more growth and a lot more you know experience out of going to the Lorne farm than he would have gotten playing baseball again with just like, you know, the neighborhood kids, which also just doesn't seem to be something he's all that into. Uh, he clearly didn't gravitate to the baseball stuff in the department store to begin with. Right, exactly. Well, all right. So we are now at the second fairy tale that we get in this section. And, and this one really just comes out of nowhere. It is not narrated by anyone. It's not narrated to anyone in the, the story here. Weir doesn't explain that this is something he's read. We don't get anything like that. He just launches into this story apropos of nothing. But strangely, there is even a bit of nesting within this story. So the story begins with a Muslim prayer and then launches us into a, a tale in media rest with the word and as the first word of the story. A man pulls a stopper out of a bottle or, you know, it might be a, a lamp. And then there's a gin with scary teeth and five eyes. And the man who has let this gin out just says that he wants the gin to tell him a story because the care of men is weighing heavily upon him. And he needs some distraction, right? So a little bit more, um, you know, what Wolf thinks stories are for here, or one of the things that stories can do for us anyway. And so after this frame, we then actually get the fairy tale that is told to us by this djinn. And this story is about a slave in medieval Damascus. His name is Ben Yaya, and his master is uh, a Merid, which is a, a type of supernatural being. Uh, we can talk more specifically about what Wolf has in mind later. And... This Merid's name is Naranj, which is to say orange. Naranj uses Ben Yaya to help him with his street food business or, or something like that. But I don't know. It's unclear. It's very strange. But at any rate, Ben Yaya has to go gather stones, which the Merid will turn into cows. And then Ben Yaya has to butcher the cows. He also gathers roots, which the Merid turns into sherbet, and which Ben Yaya then sells to people on the street. Like he walks around with a backpack full of sherbet and sells that to people. And all of this is very hard work, and Ben Yaya spends a lot of time carrying these heavy loads around on his back, and this is the context in which his adventure, the unusual thing, happens. So one day, he's out selling sherbet, and he's stung by a scorpion. When he takes his load off to you know, look at his foot and deal with his wound, he does something that he's almost never able to do otherwise. He looks up, and what he sees overhanging this alley is a ripe pear that he can almost reach. So he stands on his jar of sherbet so that he can grab this pear. But when he stands on the jar, now he can see even more of the world up here, and he spies a beautiful woman in a window, and he falls in love immediately. Now, of course, this is a story, and that means this can't possibly go well, and so... Well, it doesn't, and he immediately falls off the jar and knocks it over, breaks it, ruins the sherbet, and later he's beaten for this by the, the Merid. But he, he tells the Merid about the woman, but the Merid already knows all about this, also his attempt to get the pair, because it turns out that this is the Merid's house. He was there, he saw the whole thing. And the woman Ben Yaya saw belongs to him also. She also is his property, his slave. 
But now he makes a deal with Ben Yaya. If Ben Yaya will agree to serve the marriage for 30 more years, he will give this woman to him and then also manumit the pair of them. Now, this does not make a whole lot of sense since the marriage already owns Ben Yaya. And so he explains further. What he really wants here is for Ben Yaya not to slack so much, right? If he gets stung by a scorpion, well, too bad. He doesn't get to stop and tend to the wound anymore. He has to work like a machine. He has to work like a tool and not like a person. And he also is not going to get to see this woman during this time. So, you know, 30 years, right? But if he can do this, if he can put up with all of this for 30 years, then he will get what he wants. And he does. We fast forward now to the end of the 30 years, and Ben Yaya has been just just ruined by the, the labor that he has to do. He's gray. He's stooped. He's got this terrible cough. But... The Merid keeps his word, and he flies Ben Yaya over oceans and deserts to a metropolis in a land of great mountains. The Merid says that the woman is in the city here, and the city is called the Haunted City. And then the Merid vanishes like smoke. And that's it. That's the end of the tale. Uh, We do get one more line, and it's this. And Shahrazad perceived the dawn of day and ceased to say her permitted say, which suggests that this is part of the thousand and one nights, but it's not. It's not. It's definitely not part of one thousand and one nights. Uh, but that's a story cycle. That's its own story cycle. And Wolf is inserting one of his own stories into the cycle. This just makes me wonder if Wolf is commenting on how folk literature and folk stories should maybe he th- if he thinks they can should continue to inv- evolve and be added to, I don't know, something about the importance of communal stories and storytelling. Let's just put a pin on that whole conversation for now, because that's something to think about for the discussion rather than something for right now. But this story really reminds me about other, another story in particular about laboring for love. It's that of Jacob, Leah and Rachel found in the Christian Old Testament or the Pentateuch, where Jacob continues to make deals to work for longer, to marry the right bride. He's tricked. You know, he spends decades doing this. And, uh, you know, eventually this leads to the founding of, of, of Israel. So, you know, another situation where this kind of laborious, maybe suffering, creating or partially evil job is really about the good of a whole people or, or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That's all I'll say. Um, but, you know, we will be looking at these fairy tales or folk stories or fables much more closely in our discussion. I do I do have a few things to say about this one before we close out this episode, though. Firstly, um, Merid isn't just a supernatural being. It's really, in my understanding, got a dark or even evil connotation to it. So... I think that's evident even in the context of the story. And I I will also say this, though this is something that I came across in Mark Aramini's work, uh, Between Light and Shadows. I I couldn't resist looking up some things about peace (laughs) while reading it. And that's this, that that Ben Yahya means son of John. And hey, John is our narrator's dad's name. So I don't know. Maybe we'll just leave that there for a moment. Glenn, you also really pointed out, and I think uh, hammered home here, that this story is inserted into this text without context. It's a an interjection between a continual narrative about riding in the car and going to see the Lorns about an egg. So just textually, this is a strange artifact, like something that Weir was thinking about while he was thinking about this episode, this anecdote, this time when he was riding in the car with McAfee and Aunt Olivia. But there's just too much we don't know at this point. Bad bosses, though, have already shown up in this story. So that's something to tie to other things we've seen with Blaine and even with Weir himself. The term slave has been thrown around or slavey more than once with regards to the tenant farmers on the Weir's property, uh, the Greens, I think, with regards to this djinn who's forced to tell the story. And then the djinn is telling a story about a slave as well. We've just got to keep our eye on this symbolism. And and maybe in the middle of some other chapter, we'll just have a wild revelation about what Wolf is up to here. But it still feels <laughs> as though, as I said, even though we're easily a third of the way through the page count of the novel, Wolf is still just setting the table. Well, I think we can definitely see that this is a story about Weir 
now, right? We are the old man who is writing this entire book. And yeah, we get that with just thinking about the etymology of the name and hey, who in this story is actually the son of John? And also who in this story is beaten down by labor, right? You know, who is it that is suffering from a stroke? Who is it that isn't walking properly because of that? And perhaps there's some other like physical health issues going on. And hey, who else in this story also just, you know, worked for 30 years and never got married, right? Where is who these people are? And so this might tell us a little bit about why it is that Weir remains unmarried, that perhaps there is some woman that he's fallen in love with at some point that he can't Mary for some reason. And, you know, that's been a source of of sadness and, and disappointment and maybe even despair for him. That's something we can keep a lookout for. But, you know, it is apropos of nothing if we're, we're thinking about, you know, sort of like what is immediately preceding this. But we could also hearken back to the discovery of this Persian room in his house and and see that the weir who is writing down this story right now and who I think has perhaps just composed this story you know at this moment as well that this is not a story that he encountered as a child or has heard before or anything like that but that he's writing his own kind of you know uh, thousand and one nights like fan fiction here perhaps being inspired by the discovery of this this Persian room because although a thousand and one nights is written in Arabic and was almost certainly composed in uh, in golden age baghdad the setting of the story is is persianate uh it may not actually be in persia i think right that the the ruler who is actually like the audience for all of these stories that shahrazad is is telling is described as being persian he's described as being sasanian uh though he's actually ruling in india and and china so like meaning you know like central asia like turkmenistan or uzbekistan or something like that i think is presumably what we've got there but that he's someone who would have spoken persian and shahrazad's name is persian and so on and so yeah that uh, discovery of the Persian room might lead to this type of story, perhaps. Uh, we also saw, you know, with reference to this sort of Persian theme in chapter one, that Weir believed his grandfather had uh, a Simurgh, which was, a you know, an Iranian kind of mythical bird, part of the Persian Empire. So, yes, this has something to do with everything, though I'm not sure what <laughs> just yet. Um, but colonialism is as ever on Wolf's mind in some regard. And, you know, Th- Thousand and One Nights is kind of one of these great, you know, tales brought back from the from the Brit- expansion of the British Empire. Um, so I don't know. I don't I don't quite know what the connections are. But boy, this is the third story that is going to take up maybe a whole episode of a discussion of of chapter two. But for now, uh, that is going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. We hope that you'll drop by the forum at claytemplemedia.com or the Clay Temple Media subreddit and talk with us about these two fairy tales that we get here. And if you also just want to talk with us about beautiful descriptions of clouds, we're up for that. That was a beautiful descriptive passage there. And if you're able to help us out with some financial support, we would really appreciate that. We'd be so grateful for that. Even small amounts, even small monthly amounts add up to a lot of support for us and and really help with the expenses of the show. And you can do that at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. And we're really grateful for all the support that we get from, from our great listeners. Next time, we are going to finish chapter two. So that's going to be pages 121 to 141 in the Orb 2012 edition. And until then... We greet you and say farewell.